0: Welcome to the Bearing Precious Seed Podcast. We are dealing with Satan's devices to keep souls from holy duties, to hinder souls in holy services, and to keep them off from religious performances. Basically, to sum it up, we're dealing with what Satan does to keep us from serving God. On this episode, we're dealing with a device that, if we're not careful, will ruin everything that God wants to do in our life. We're dealing with the Christian and their mind, the way that you think. We're going to look exactly how Satan is using the device with your mind and how to keep you off from serving the Lord. I challenge you to think about how you think. Because how you think determines what you do. And ultimately, how you think about God determines how you serve Him. You're listening to the BPS podcast.
1: Your brain needs a lot of energy to function, a lot. Despite the fact that the average adult brain is only about 2% of your total body mass, it uses a full 20% of the energy you spend while at rest. To keep all your brain functions going, neurons, the cells that make up your brain, have to constantly be at the ready, and that is no easy task. Your brain has about 86 billion neurons that are interconnected at 100 trillion to quadrillion synapses. When you're thinking, your neurons are shooting messages back and forth across your brain. The cells are firing. And because someone could jump out and scare you at any time, they have to be ready to fire at a moment's notice. One study found that the firing of neurons uses about two-thirds of all your brain's energy. And now scientists have found out how brain cells recharge and fire. They found out where that energy is going. It turns out they operate much the same way your muscle cells do when you're exercising. Both neurons and muscles need glucose, a simple form of sugar, to function. In order to get more glucose, they activate a protein called GLUT4, which lives inside our cells. As you start thinking really hard, extra GLUT4 moves to the surface of the cell membranes. As I understand it, the GLUT4 is sort of like the neuron is sticking a little fishing net out into the bloodstream to grab glucose. Once the nets are out there, they just keep grabbing more fuel, allowing our brain cells to burn the midnight oil. Once it grabs onto the glucose, it can use that to send messages and keep you thinking. There's a common misconception, though, that your neurons are firing electricity from one cell to the next, and that's a bit misleading. It's not like electricity in your home. Instead, your brain's electrical signals come from charged molecules called ions. The charge propagates down the length of a nerve cell membrane, kind of like doing the wave at a hockey game. When it reaches the end of the cell, the electrical signal is converted into a chemical signal. The chemicals are collectively called neurotransmitters, which allow the cells to talk to each other. The neurotransmitters are stored in little containers across the neuron called vesicles. Neurons can have hundreds to hundreds of thousands of vesicles, all making sure the messages it wants to send can get out safely. Okay, so now that you have that, this is the cool part. Once a neuron is ready to talk to its neighbor, it's ready to fire. It releases an ion via these chemicals and throws it into the synaptic gap, the space between neurons. And then, bam, the ion is grabbed by the next neuron in the chain, and the game of brain telephone continues. All of this activity is powered by a molecule called adenosine triphosphate or ATP, which is generated by the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. And what does mitochondria burn? Glucose, baby. So GLUT4 grabs some glucose, pulls it into the cell, gives it to the mitochondria, which converts it to ATP, so that we can send charged ions through neurotransmitting chemicals all the way to the next cell. And this happens again and again and again. It's happening in your brain right now while you're watching this. Or if that's too confusing, just remember, our brain basically runs on sugar, just like muscles. Also like muscles, if you're low on sugar, it makes it hard for your brain to work. It seems like the optimal amount of sugar for your brain is about 25 grams of glucose floating in your bloodstream. For scale, that's about as much as you'd find in a banana. So if you're ever in a fog, take a break, have a bite, and let your thinky meat recover. So more glucose doesn't mean more better. But what about electricity? Would giving my brain a little jolt kick things into overdrive? Julia tackles that super insane idea here. Have you ever noticed?
0: the quote of the episode, this one comes right along with the subject we're dealing with on this episode. It comes from Jerry Bridges. Here's the quote. Our minds are mental greenhouses where unlawful thoughts, once planted, are nurtured and watered before being transplanted into the real world of unlawful actions. Let's go over that once more so that your mind, which what we're dealing with, can soak it in. Our minds are mental greenhouses where unlawful thoughts, once planted, are nurtured and watered before being transplanted into the real world of unlawful actions. Again, how you think is a direct influence on how you act. You're listening to the BPS Podcast.
2: So if you put a pair of earphones on at night with a program of what you would like to be true in your life, that program is playing. It's not playing into your conscious mind. That's shut off. It's now going straight into the subconscious mind. You will be successful because 95% of the day, your program automatically will be seeking your wishes. Talk to me about your book, The Honeymoon Effect. Yeah. What that was all about, (laughs) if you can explain it. Okay, uh, The Honeymoon Effect is this. Uh, This is the whole story of uh, the Matrix. Matrix, uh, you've been programmed? Oh, you're going to take a red pill and get out of the program, okay? Falling in love is the equivalent of taking the red pill biologically. Scientists have studied what is called mind-wandering. I say, what is mind-wandering? I said, well, your conscious mind could be focused on a task or your conscious mind could go off into a, you know, think about things, okay? Uh, And the relevance about that is when the conscious mind is staying in the front you're in absolute control Wishes desires what you want conscious mind creative you're in control But the moment your conscious mind takes off into a thought or starts thinking or whatever going on uh, It lets go of the wheel the autopilot takes over okay So the idea is this if your mind is wandering then you're being run by the subconscious Uh, uh, And it turns out this is very negative when your mind is straightforward in consciousness, you're you're controlling the vehicle. So I say, falling in love has been demonstrated biologically to be equivalent to the red pill because what it does is it keeps you, what do they call, mindful, keeps you conscious. Look, you've been looking for this partner your whole life. They're now in front of your face. This is not the time to go thinking about things. It's time to be, look what I got right here in front of me. And I say, well, think about it this way. Your life could suck every day, every day, every day, every day, and then you meet this person and 24 hours later, it's heaven on earth. 24 hours later, oh my God, I'm so in love, you know? Even the job's not so bad anymore and the food tastes great and the music is so much better and love and love and love. I go, what the heck happened? You had all of this negative, negative, and then in 24 hours, you have this heaven on earth. And the answer was, It was taking the red pill. That's what falling in love is. At that moment, you stop playing the program. Now you're operating from conscious mind, which is creative, which by definition is wishes and desires. Brian, what what the heck do you want from your life? If you answer that question, it's a creative answer, and by definition, it's conscious. So your wishes and desires are in your conscious mind. In a normal person's life, 5% of the day, you're moving toward that. 95% you're playing the program. You fall in love. One hundred. It was actually ninety percent. I think is the number. Ninety percent from conscious mind. Ninety percent of the day you are now operating from creative wishes and desires. I go, look. I said your life sucked all the way up, and then twenty-four hours of operating on wishes and desires and not playing the program turned Earth into heaven for you at that moment. And, and then you go, well, how come the honeymoon doesn't last? And I go because inevitably you still have to think about things, your job, your chores, your requirements, what you have to do, and at some point, once you start thinking, then the conscious mind is shut off, and guess what shows up? All those behaviors in the subconscious mind that were negative, 70%. And your partner, remember, your partner and you fall in love, same time, both of you operating from conscious mind with wishes and desires, and all of a sudden, you start thinking And then this behavior shows up, that was your mother, your father, whatever thing you learned, and your partner's like, where the hell did that come from? Who are you? Where did that come from? I, you know, we've been in this honeymoon, I've never seen that behavior. If you would've played that behavior on the first date, maybe we wouldn't have a second date, but now it shows up. And I say, why did it show up? Because I stopped being mindful. So how do you teach people to keep the honeymoon alive? is to change the the subconscious program. And and it's simple, For reasoning is simple. Conscious mind, wishes and desires. Subconscious mind, program. Well, what if you took the wishes and desires and made those programs? Ah, Then guess what? You don't even have to think about it. You will automatically, 95% of the day, be playing behaviors to manifest those wishes and desires. So reprogramming the subconscious with wishes and desires means you don't even have to think about it. You will be successful because 95% of the day, your program automatically will be seeking your wishes.
0: Welcome back to the BPS podcast. You just listened to some illustrations that some individuals were making on how to control your mind, what influences your mind has on your body and certain things like that, and much of what they said was true, I wouldn't necessarily agree with everything. They do not come from a Christian worldview, and they do not hold the same standards that we seem to hold in our Christian circles. But I did want to give you context to exactly how your mind is working and the power it has over your body. We are dealing with device number seven of Satan to hinder you from serving God. Device number seven. By casting in a multitude of vain thoughts. Now, you need to know before we continue, the word vain means empty. So, by casting in a multitude of empty thoughts, while the soul is in seeking of God, or in waiting on God. And by this device, he has cooled some men's spirits in heavenly services, and taken off, at least for a time, many precious souls from religious performances. You may say, I have no heart to hear, nor no heart to pray, nor no delight in reading, nor in the society of the saints. Satan does so dog and follow my soul, and is still a casting in such a multitude of empty thoughts concerning God, the world, and my own soul, that I even tremble to think of waiting upon God in any religious service. Oh, the vain thoughts that Satan casts in, do so distaste my soul, and so grieve, vex, perplex, and distract my soul, that they even make me weary of holy duties, yes, of my very life. Oh, I cannot be so raised and ravished, so heated and melted, so quickened and enlarged, so comforted and refreshed, as I should be, as I might be, and as I would be in religious services, by reason Of that multitude of vain thoughts, which Satan is injecting or casting into my soul. Lord, now how gladly would I serve you, and vain thoughts will not allow me. Our thoughts control our actions. We're going to keep repeating that. Our thoughts control our actions. How you think, what you think, about everything, ultimately, is a direct influence on what you do. Remedy number one against this device of Satan is to have your hearts strongly affected with the greatness, holiness, majesty, and glory of that God before whom you stand and with whom your souls converse in religious service. Oh, let your souls be greatly affected with his presence, purity, and majesty of that God before whom you stand. A man would be afraid of playing with a feather, when he is speaking with a king. Ah, when men have poor, low, light, slight thoughts of God, in their drawing near to God, they tempt the devil to bestir himself and to cast in a multitude of vain thoughts to disturb and distract the soul in its waiting on God. There is nothing that will contribute so much to the keeping out of vain thoughts as to look upon God as an omniscient God, an omnipresent God, and an omnipotent God, a God full of all glorious perfections, a God whose majesty, purity, and glory will not allow him to behold the least iniquity. The reason why the blessed saints and glorious angels in heaven have not so much as one vain thought is because they are greatly affected with the greatness, holiness, majesty, purity, and glory of God. When Pompey could not keep his soldiers in the camp by persuasion, he cast himself down along in a narrow passage which led out of it, and bade them go if they would. But they must first trample upon their general, and the thoughts of this overcame them. You are wise if you know how to apply that to the point at hand. Remedy number two against this device of Satan is, To be faithful in religious services, notwithstanding all those wandering thoughts the soul is troubled with. This will be a sweet help against them. For the soul will be resolute in waiting on God, whether it be troubled with vain thoughts or not. To say, well, I will pray still, and hear still, and meditate still, and keep fellowship with the saints still. Many precious souls can say from experience that when their souls have been steadfast in their waiting on God, that Satan has left them and has not been so busy in vexing their souls with vain thoughts. When Satan perceives that all those trifling vain thoughts that he casts into the soul do but vex the soul into greater diligence, carefulness, watchfulness, and steadfastness in holy and heavenly services, and that the soul loses nothing of his zeal, piety, and devotion, but doubles his care, diligence, and earnestness, he often ceases to interpose his trifles and vain thoughts as he ceased to tempt Christ when Christ was steadfast in resisting his temptations. What is being said here, if I was going to simplify it, is when vain thoughts or thoughts that are empty come into your mind, serve God the more, continue doing what you know to do, you press on regardless of your heart leading you astray, your mind will lead you astray. It is a rule in civil law, That nothing seems to be done if there remains anything to be done. If once you say it is enough, you are undone. Remedy number three. The third device against this device of Satan is to consider that those vain and trifling thoughts that are cast into our souls when we are waiting upon God in this or that religious service if they be not cherished and indulged, but abhorred, resisted, and disclaimed. They are not sins upon our souls, though they may be troubles to our minds. They shall not be put upon our accounts, nor keep mercies and blessings from being enjoyed by us. When a soul in uprightness can look God in the face and say, Lord, when I approach near unto you, there are a world of vain thoughts crowned in upon me, which disturb serve my soul, and weaken my faith, and lessen my comfort and spiritual strength. Oh, these are my clog, my burden, my torment, my hell. To be honest with you, vain thoughts affect me personally greatly. And if you're honest, they affect you as well. Do justice upon these. Free me from these, that I may serve you with more freeness, singleness, Spiritualness and sweetness of spirit, these thoughts may vex that soul, but they shall not harm that soul, nor keep a blessing from that soul. if vain thoughts resisted and lamented could stop the current of mercy and render a soul unhappy, there would be none on earth that could, should ever taste of mercy or everlastingly be happy. It is not Satan casting in a vain thoughts that can keep mercy from the soul or undo the soul, but the lodging and cherishing of vain thoughts. Let's look at that once more. It is not Satan casting in of vain thoughts that can keep mercy from the soul or undo the soul, but the lodging and cherishing of vain thoughts. Jeremiah 4:14, O Jerusalem, how long shall vain thoughts lodge within you? Vain thoughts pass through the best hearts, They are lodged and cherished only in the worst hearts. These thoughts, evil thoughts, may arrive in your heart. But don't let them live in your heart. Kick them out. Kick their butt out the door. We don't want them there. Remedy number four against the device of Satan is solemnly to consider that watching against sinful thoughts, resisting of sinful thoughts, Lamenting and weeping over sinful thoughts carries with it the sweetest and strongest evidence of the truth and power of grace and of the sincerity of your hearts and the readiness and the sureness of the way to get rid of them. Many low and carnal considerations may cause men to watch their words, their lives, their actions as hope of gain or to please friends or to get a name in the world and many other such like considerations. Oh, but to watch our thoughts, to weep and lament over them. This must ne- must needs be from some noble, spiritual, and internal principle, such as love to God, a holy fear of God, a holy care and, and delight to please the Lord. Thoughts are the firstborn, the blossoms of the soul, the beginning of our strength, whether for good or evil, and they are the greatest evidences for or against a man that can be. The schools do well observe that outward sins are of greater infamy But inward heart sins are of the greater guilt as we see in the devils. There is nothing that so speaks out a man to be thoroughly and kindly wrought upon as his having his thoughts to be brought unto obedience, as the apostle speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Well, though you cannot be rid of them, yet make resistance and opposition against the first risings of them. When sinful thoughts arise, then think this, the Lord takes notice of these thoughts. He knows them afar off, as the psalmist speaks. He knew Herod's bloody thoughts and Judas's betraying thoughts and the Pharisees' cruel and blasphemous thoughts afar off. Oh, think this. All these sinful thoughts, they defile and pollute the soul. They deface and spoil much of the inward beauty and glory of the soul. If I commit this or that sin to which my thoughts incline me, then either I must repent or not repent. If I repent, it will cost me more grief, sorrow, shame, heart-breaking, and soul-bleeding before my conscience will be quieted, divine justice pacified, my comfort and joy resorted, my evidence is cleared, and my pardon in the court of conscience sealed, than the imagined profit or seeming sensual pleasure can be worth. But if you never repent, then your sinful thoughts will be scorpions that will eternally vex you, the rods that will eternally lash you, the thorns that will everlastingly pierce you, the dagger that will be eternally a stabbing you, the worm that will be forever gnawing at you. Oh, therefore, watch against them, be constant in resisting them and in lamenting and weeping over them. And then they shall not hurt you, though they may be for a time trouble you. And remember this, he who does this, does more than the most glistering and blustering hypocrite in the world does. Inward bleeding kills many a man. So will sinful thoughts, if not, repent it of. Remedy number five against the device of Satan is this. To labor more and more to be filled with the fullness of God and to be enriched with all spiritual and heavenly things. What is the reason that the angels in heaven have not so much as an idle thought? It is because they are filled with the fullness of God. Take it for an experienced truth. The more the soul is filled with the fullness of God and enriched with spiritual and heavenly things, the less room there is in that soul for vain thoughts. The fuller the vessel is of wine, the less room there is for water. Oh, then lay up much of God, of Christ, of precious promises and choice experiences in your hearts, And then you will be the less troubled with empty thoughts. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth good things. The sixth remedy against the device of Satan is to keep up holy and spiritual affections. For such as your affections are, such will be your thoughts. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. What we love most is what we will medit- meditate upon the most. When I awake, I am still with you, as Psalm 139.18 says, That which we much like, we shall much mind. Those who are frequent in their love to God and His law will be frequent in thinking of God and His law. A child will for- not forget his mother. Remedy number seven against this device of Satan is... To avoid multiplicity of worldly business. Oh, let not the world take up your hearts and thoughts. Souls which are torn in pieces with the cares of the world will always be vexed and tormented with vain thoughts and all their approaches to God. Vain thoughts will be still crowding in upon him that lives in a crowd of business. The stars which have least circuit are nearest the pole. And men that are least perplexed with business are commonly nearest to God. Christian, how you handle your thinking and your mind is ultimately how good you will serve God. Someone who thinks wrong towards God will not serve him right. Someone who does think right towards God will serve him right. You must learn that we must clean, as I've heard before, our stinking thinking. We have to get our minds right. And to be honest, many of us have been daydreaming for too long. We've been thinking about emptiness and corruption for too long. It's time for our mind to go to the car wash and get a nice scrub-a-dub-dub and get ourselves clean. We know that the heart, your mind, is a part of the heart. Psalm fifty-one, ten: create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That could be your prayer to get your mind clean. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. You're listening to the BPS Podcast. It's time for your Christian dad joke of this episode. This one is the most corny dad joke we have ever, ever, ever given on this podcast. But with all sincerity of my heart, and with all joy and a big smile on my face, here it is. Who do mice pray to? Again, who do mice pray to? (laughs) Jesus. Get it? Jesus. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed the Christian dad joke of the episode. Welcome back to the BPS Podcast and this segment of Food for Thought, where we as Christians want to give other Christians food for their thought. We are dealing now with a subject that you may have never considered before. We are going to discuss quickly whether a Christian should support what they call euthanasia. Euthanasia is the painless killing of a patient suffering from an incurable and painful disease or an irreversible coma. The practice, though, is legal in most countries. So ultimately, let's say I had cancer. It's incurable, and I'm going to die in the next six months to a year, and I'm in pain, and I just want to end it now. In most countries, you can commit euthanasia and take your life at any moment, or someone else, if I was unconscious, could take my life. The question, though, Christian, is should we support this practice? In other words, should we support when people want to decide to take their own lives? To me, I know these people are sick, but in some cases, people are wanting euthanasia. They're desiring euthanasia over mental things like depression, which ultimately in my books comes down to ultimately suicide, of taking your own life. My question to you is Christian, and I haven't necessarily formed a strong argument on either side, should we support euthanasia of individuals choosing when to end their own life, or should we not and allow God to determine that himself? It's a question you may be asked with, as America may be making this legal in the near future. It's something you need to think about now, before it comes to our country. You're listening to the BPS Podcast. Thank you so much for taking your time to listen to the BPS podcast. We know that there are plenty of other podcasts in the world to listen to, and we enjoy and appreciate you so much for desiring to listen to ours. Again, as always, we end our episode with the same phrase, work for the night is coming.